Um, but this morning, everyone gets to sit in here as we open Psalm 133 together. So if you, as you turn there, Psalm 133 will be our text this morning. As you turn there, uh, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new with us, we're glad that you're here. When you came in, there should have been a guest card uh, in somewhere around where you were seated. And so if you would like to leave that with us at the box at the kiosk in the back of the room on your way out, we'd love to send you some information about who we are as a church. Um, if you have prayer requests, needs in your life, we'd love to pray with you about those things. You can, other side of that guest card is a place for prayer requests. You can submit those in the same place, or you can pull out your phone, and you can scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you, and you can pull up our digital bulletin where you can also submit that guest card, and you can send those prayer requests that way as well. Uh, so Psalm 133 is where we are this morning. I appreciate Matt Simmons, uh, uh, taking the pulpit last week and working us through Psalm 23, reminding us that God is our shepherd who walks with us even, as, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I hope you were blessed by the message that he brought last week. Uh, so if you're looking for a better sermon than the one you're going to hear today, go back and listen to last week's and listen to Matt preach, okay? Um, because it'll be much better than the one you're about to hear. But in Psalm 133 is where we're going to be this morning. It's one of the shortest psalms in the 150 collection there in the Old Testament. But as we read it together, it'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have it in front of you uh, and you want to follow along there. Psalm 133 begins, a song of ascent of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is God's word. Now church, I don't need to convince you, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time persuading you this morning that we live in a divided world. Okay, you see it all around you. You see division politically, not only on the left and right, but on the extreme right and the extreme left amongst those two polar parties. There's division generationally because every generation that comes up underneath, thanks to the generation that's come before them, has no clue about how things should be done in their time. And the generation who's come before the generation that's coming up thinks these kids have... We're, our society's doomed, right? Every generation sees things through those lenses, and there's division generationally. There's division ideologically, right? Not only with regards to how our nation should be run and proceed, but also within the lives of churches at times. There's division racially, right? The most segregated hour on a Sunday morning is this one, or, or throughout the week is this one. There is division interpersonally at times in the lives of God's people whenever there is friction, whenever someone sins through action, deed, word against another. It creates division interpersonally. So I don't need to spend a whole lot of time or give you a whole lot of examples because you've experienced it. In fact, this is the reality that most of us are inhaling day after day after day after day. You turn on the news, you talk to family, okay? right? You spend time with your children, right? There is division seething, or, or, or seething beneath the surface almost in every relationship and in every context. We're inhaling this constantly. And yet David in Psalm 133, he paints a picture for us of human community that flourishes whenever we dwell together, whenever we dwell in unity, united to one another rather than separate and divided from one another. And as we inhale this reality of division within not only the culture, but also in the church, we need to learn to exhale the truth of Psalm 133 and to remind ourselves of the beauty and the blessing of unity in the life of God's people. And what we find in Psalm 133 that, that we need to exhale, that we need to learn from, is a statement of principle and then two pictures that are vivid illustrations of the impact of unity among God's people. And so I want to start this morning with the principle and then take a look at the two pictures and then give you a few thoughts of application as we move out, okay? So the principle is this in Psalm 133, that unity among God's people, it is both beneficial and delightful. 
is both of those things. You might even say it's beneficial and beautiful whenever you see it exercised among God's people. Now, I want you to notice with me in the text how David is drawing our attention to the topic of unity among the people of God. He says the very first word in verse 1, he says, Behold. Now, we don't use that word a whole lot in our context any longer. We say things like this. Would you look at this? Right? Would you consider this? Would you fix your gaze or your attention on this? We don't use those words either, right? right? Wrap your mind around this truth, around this concept. Take note. Don't miss it. Let it sink in. Don't disregard this. Don't look away from this. Don't ignore or neglect this. Give it your attention. David says, behold. He's trying to draw our attention to the importance of this principle with that word. And then he uses the word dwell. He uses the word dwell. Now to dwell means to live. It means to reside. It means to, it means to stay somewhere. You know what I'm saying? It communicates the idea of continuance or persistence or perseverance. So in other words, there is a persistence and a perseverance to the experience of unity among God's people that makes it powerful. So what David is not saying, he's not talking about being together or coming together or meeting together for a certain amount of time, right? He's not saying, hey, get together once for an hour a week on Sunday mornings. Or, hey, get together for a couple of hours on a weeknight for a small group. Or, hey, get together for these three hours on on a Saturday morning to go serve and meet a need in the community. Rather, David is saying that unity, this togetherness, is not just the station that you stop at, but it ought to be the whole ride of your life as a Christian who's a part of God's people. So you don't just stop and get on and off a train at the station, but it's the whole journey, it's the whole ride that you dwell in this blessed status, is what he's saying. And then he says, this type of unity that you live in as God's people, it is good and it is pleasant. Now, those are the two words from which I draw beneficial and delightful. Let me tell you why. The two words here for good and pleasant, the first one is used in the Old Testament in terms of something being advantageous for us. It's to our advantage. It's to our benefit. And, in the, and I will give, tell you two ways that unity is to our benefit as Christians. First of all, I want you to notice the heading of the psalm. It is beneficial for our worship. For our worship, church. It says, Psalm of David, a song of ascent. Now, the songs of ascent in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, right, there's a collection of them that Psalm 133 falls almost towards the end of. And these songs of ascent were sung by the people of God as they made pilgrimage every year to go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. So they were sung on the way as they ascended, right, as they ascended to the mount, the temple mount, as they ascended up. And oftentimes, even as they left and went back home, these songs of ascent were part of their preparation for worship of going before the Lord year after year after year. And so as they went before God, they were singing about the blessing of unity among the people. Now, it was not only beneficial for their worship. I want to tell you something this morning. It's beneficial for our worship as well as Christians you don't believe me, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says these words, you have heard that it was said of old, right? You shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, Jesus says in verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what does he say? Just ignore it. Just dismiss it. Right? Just focus your, your, your mind on the power of positive thinking. That's not what he says. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court. 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus tells us in the New Testament that if we are at the altar making an offering, if we're coming to worship and we're standing before God with our eyes closed and our hands raised and we're singing hallelujah, praise be to Jesus, praise be to the Spirit, praise be to the Father. Right? We're singing songs of praise. We're coming to the Lord's table to receive the bread and the cup. Jesus says if you remember, if the Spirit brings to mind the conviction of the reality that there is strife and division grading against the unity between brothers and sisters. He says, don't just come to the table and drink the cup as if everything was okay. He says, go make it right. Go be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and make your offering. Then come back and raise your hands and shout hallelujah together. Because it is beneficial for your worship. To be unified as brothers and sisters. But second of all, it's beneficial for our mission. For our mission. Charles Spurgeon in his sermon on Psalm 133 said it this way. He said, Christian unity is good in itself. Good for ourselves. Good for the brethren. Good for our converts. Good for the outside world. And for certain it is pleasant, for a loving heart must have pleasure and give pleasure in associating with others of like nature. A church united for years in earnest service of the Lord is a well of goodness and joy. Listen to all who dwell round about it. When a church is bound together in unity, he said it's not only good in and of itself and good for ourselves and good for our brothers and sisters and good for our converts, it's good for the outside world and a blessing to everyone who dwells around a body of Christ that is bound together in unity as we engage in the mission of disciple making. So unity is good, church. It's beneficial for our worship and beneficial for our mission. But the second term that's used here to describe unity is something that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe something that is delightful, that brings joy, or that is pleasurable for us. Listen, let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. How many of you guys love good music? Right? Love good music. You love to hear the riffs and the runs, right? You love to hear solos. You love to hear vocalists who are able to take their parts and blend them together and harmonize in a way that it, it creates something that is a sound that is bigger and more beautiful than any one of them could do alone, right? You're, you're picking up what I'm putting down, you following me? Right? Because there's a certain way where the melodies and the rhythms of the music, if they're working together with one another, it, there, there, there is a delight to it, to our ears. It's a pleasurable experience for us. However, if the rhythm is off, and if the harmonies are a step high or a step low, if they're sharp or if they're flat, that is not a pleasurable experience. Sometimes it can be a painful one, can't it? Right? When there's not unity, when, the things, when they're not working together, but they're working against each other, it's painful. But when they're working with each other, it is pleasurable. And so when we talk about there being a delightfulness to unity, we see that musically. And we see it in so many other areas of life, and the same is true in the church. It is delightful, and it is first of all delightful to God Himself whenever His People are dwelling together in unity. Think about it this way. It's delightful to God because whenever we are dwelling together as brothers and sisters in unity, regardless of our generational perspective, regardless of our experiences, regardless of our education, regardless of our socioeconomics, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our, what side of the political aisle we may fall on, but we're dwelling together in unity. When that's happening, it is a reflection of the very nature of God himself. And it's a delightful, pleasurable experience, first and foremost, to God. Listen to what Jesus prays for in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. 
He says, I do not ask for these only. Who's he talking about? The disciples, right? Those who are most, most near to him in proximity. I do not ask for these only. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's he talking about there? Yeah, every generation that would come after them, including ours. And what is he asking? Verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then he says, here's the purpose for which he's asking this. It's beautiful. That the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus says, you want the world to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that he is the only path to God. One of the ways that the church broadcasts that message is through their life together in unity. That they are one, just as Jesus is in the Father, right? Is, is, and the Father is in Jesus, not, uh, that, that's a, Long explanation, okay? But listen, just as the Father and the Son are one, right? And the Son and the Father are one, all bound together by the love of the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, so they may be one in us. He doesn't say, so they may be one in politics. They may be one in ethnicity. They may be one in language. They may be one in tribe and kin and clan. They may be one in neighborhood. They may be one in what school they went to. They may, you see what I'm saying, right? They may be one in us. They may be one in us. And then the world will know that indeed you have sent me. So Jesus says, first and foremost, it would be a pleasurable, delightful experience for God to look down and to see the rhythm and the melody working together, not against each other. And you know this to be true in your own family. Listen, when your kids are bound together in unity, those are your parents, it brings you great joy, doesn't it? But whenever there is strife in the home and they are fighting again, and again, and one more time, and again, right? It's painful for a parent to watch that and to see those that they love so deeply not loving one another well. And I believe the same is true with regards to our Heavenly Father. It's delightful to God first. It's delightful, second of all, to Christians. Listen, it is so much more delightful to be a part of a healthy family that's bound together in unity than one's all, always filled with conflict and division, isn't it? Right? So it's to your benefit, it's to my benefit, to be a part of a church family that is bound together, right? Not constantly bickering and arguing and fighting. And it's delightful to others. It should be something that is set forth by the church and seen by the world that is pleasurable in an age of division. See, if the world can look at the church and see that the only thing that... Let me back up. If the world looks at the church and sees that the only thing that binds them together are their interests and their hobbies and their educational backgrounds and their vocations, if that's all that binds them together, then what kind of witness is that to the world? I'll tell you this, it's not a very powerful one. But if the world looks at the church and says, I can't, I don't get it. <laughs> Why people who come from that background and that background and, and see things a little bit differently and non-essentials, how they can partner together in unity. And if we can say it's because we are one in the Father and the Son, then it is a witness to the world and a blessing to them that they can see. They can see how unity is possible among God's people, despite all of our different quirks, despite all of our different perspectives on non-essential things that God has bound us together. It's delightful to God. It's delightful to us in our own experience, and it's delightful to the world to witness such unity. Now, that's the principle. Unity is beneficial, and it is delightful. 
What about the pictures? The first picture that David gives us is this. And I, I'm going to try to communicate to you what, what I believe the image is communicating. Okay? And the first picture tells us this, that unity anoints the body. It anoints the body. In verse 2, we're told that unity persisting among God's people is like the precious oil poured on the head of Aaron, the high priest, which flows down from his head onto his beard and onto his garments. Now, in the ancient world, listen, you need to understand that oil was often used to moisten skin. Okay? And so in an ancient arid climate, which was always dusty and dry, or oftentimes dusty and dry, right, oil was like the Nivea of the ancient world, okay? It was like the Aveeno of the ancient world. So when your skin got dry, when it started to crack, like in winter when your hands are just like all, all like frayed because they've been going in and out of your pockets, right, when everything starts to dry up, they would just lather up in oil to moisten their skin, but in the Old Testament in particular, oil was a used to anoint individuals to their office. It was used to anoint high priests. It was used to anoint kings and sometimes even used to anoint prophets to their office. And it represented, right, it represented the gift of God's spirit that would enable them to carry out their office with power and effectiveness. It would be able to accomplish their duties what God had called them to with power and efficiency. Now notice, David likens unity among God's people to the pouring of this oil over the head of the high priest who was being anointed for service to God. And notice it doesn't stay where it's poured, but it eventually runs down. He's poured on his head, right? But where does it end up? All over his clothes. Okay? All over his clothes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that David highlights the fact that the oil goes from the head to the beard to the garments, covering the different parts of Aaron's body. Rather, I think it's an instructive comment for us. Charles Spurgeon, again on this, he says, It's a diffusive thing being poured on his head. The fragrant oil flowed down upon his head, then thence upon his beard, and then his garments, till almost uh, his utmost hem was anointed with the oil, right? So it runs down upon his body. It doesn't stay confined to one location. And it was anointing him for service to God. In other words, the whole body is anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit where unity dwells. So where unity dwells among God's people in that church, listen, I don't think I'm stretching too far here to say that there is an anointing an anointing in that body, on that body, for service to God and blessing to the world. And where it's lacked. See, oftentimes we think that the lack of unity, our lack of unity, right, that it stays in one place, that it's a personal matter. So if there is interpersonal friction between us and another brother or sister in Christ, another friend, we think that there's friction there, that it's going to stay isolated. But I want you to know something. The way Paul envisions the church in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is as a what? Somebody tell me. A body. And that body, when, when one part of the body does what? When it grieves, the rest of the body does what? Grieves. When one part of the body rejoices, the rest of the body does what? Celebrates and rejoices. So when one part of the body is hurting, the rest of the body can feel it. And you know that to be true if you've ever sprained your ankle right? You've ever torn a ligament. You've ever broken a bone, right? You go, well, it's just isolated there. No, it has impacts and effects for the rest of the body. You, you can't isolate a cancer cell to one part of the body and say, well, that, that cell is cancerous, and we're just going to leave it there and, and let it do its thing, because you know what happens? It metastasizes and grows, and then it spreads throughout the rest of the body. So listen, the lack of unity, in the same way that unity anoints the whole body, the lack of unity can also infect the whole body. And one empowers us for service, and the other cuts our legs out from underneath us. Let me ask you a question this morning. What would happen if all God's people were praying 
all God's people were serving, if all were inviting, all were investing, all were witnessing, all were caring, all were encouraging, all were giving, if every interaction that we had with one another was marked by love, if every word was spoken in love, if we assumed the best of other people's motives and intentions rather than the worst of people's motives and intentions, how might the anointing of the Holy Spirit manifest in the life of this church? I think we see a picture of it in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and following, it says, And all who believed were what? Together. And had all things in what? Common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Unity among God's people. It's a beautiful and delightful and good and pleasant thing. And it has productive impact as God works and anoints that body for service in His kingdom. Second picture communicates that unity also refreshes the soul. In verse 3, we see the second picture is that of dew from Mount Hermon falling upon the mountains of Zion. In the second image, there's also this refreshing liquid, in this case, dew flowing from one thing to another. And listen, while it would have been physically possible to pour the oil on Aaron's head, have it flow all the way down his garments, verse 3 paints a, almost an imaginary scene for us. Because Mount Hermon is towering almost 10,000 feet above sea level in the northern part of Israel, while the mountains of Zion are further to the southern part of Israel. But the, uh, David envisions the dew that rises over Mount Hermon every evening and morning falling on the mountains of Zion. Now, consider, I want you to consider the vividness of this picture here for a moment. Henry Baker Tristam, I don't know who the guy was, uh, but in 1867, he led an expedition on Mount Hermon and camped around the mountain. And this is how he described Mount Hermon. He said, unlike most other mountains which gradually rise from the lofty tablelands, and often at a distance from the sea, Hermon starts at once to the height of nearly 10,000 feet from a platform scarcely above sea level. This platform too, the upper Jordan Valley and the marshes of Merom, is for the most part an impenetrable swamp of unknown depth whence the seething vapor. Now, if you've ever been in a swamp or been in a marsh, right, it, and, and the sun's baking down on it, it is sweaty. It is humid from all that evaporation. Right? The seething vapor under the rays of an almost tropical sun is constantly ascending into the upper atmosphere of the mountain, is rapidly congealed and precipitated in the evening in the form of dew. The most copious we've ever experienced, he says. It penetrated everywhere, saturated everything. The floor of our tent was soaked, our bed was covered with it, our guns were dripping, the dewdrops hung about everywhere. No wonder that the foot of Hermon is clad with orchards and gardens of such marvelous fertility in this land of droughts, he says. That's how he describes Hermon. Full of this refreshing dew, day after day after day. But Zion was the hill in Jerusalem upon which the Temple Mount set. Hermon is in the far north, would have had more dew than Zion, is an area with considerably less precipitation. It was more arid, more dusty. And the picture is this, all that dew that resided on Hermon, David says, unity among God's people is like all that dew falling on this dusty, dry, parched, arid land to bring refreshment and to bring nurture and to bring growth and grace. Listen, church, how refreshing would it be to the souls of men and women in a world that is filled with strife and division and tension to experience life among God's people that's teeming with grace and fruitfulness and growth. How refreshing would that be to see unity where members of the body were quick to confess, slow to judge, and quick to forgive. It anoints the body 
and it refreshes the soul. So how is it that we dwell together in this kind of unity that's both beneficial and delightful? I'm going to give you a couple of quick things and then we're done this morning. The first one I would say is this, as far as application, that you and I need to learn to long and labor for our positional unity to become practical unity. Our positional unity to become practical unity. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now church, you need to know something, that we already possess a positional unity as members of the body of Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, you've repented of sin and placed your confidence in Jesus, you've already been bound together with a family that you did not grow up with. Okay? You already have that positionally. Why do I say that? Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He doesn't say we should be eager to create the unity of the Spirit. Rather, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In other words, God has already done something to bring unity amongst His people. And what we're tasked to do is not create it, because He's already created it, but to maintain it. So it already exists. However, our positional unity doesn't always work itself out in our practice. So Paul calls us to both long, to be eager for it. When you're eager for something, what is it? You want it really, really bad, right? Like me on the rec field at preteen camp last week. I was eager for the air conditioning, okay? I was eager for some cold water. I was eager for this refreshment, right? I longed for it. I wanted it really, really bad. And to labor for it, he says. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Right? What is it to walk but to live and to do, to labor? So you want it and then you work for it. You long for it and then you labor to that end to maintain unity with God's people. And then it even tells us how to do it. He says, with what? Humility. And what is humility, church? It is not looking in the mirror and going, you're a pile of doo-doo, right? It's not having a poor self-image. That's not what it is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is. The ability to think of others more. To think of their needs and put them before your own. He says, with gentleness. With gentleness. Sometimes we can say things that are very true, right? In very harsh ways, in hard ways, right? Paul says, don't do that. That's going to disrupt unity in the life of the body. You should speak the truth, but you should do so with humility, not putting your needs above theirs, but their needs above yours in your conversation. And then whenever you speak to them, you speak to them gently, not harshly, with patience. You know, the only way to learn patience is to have to wait for something. You know that? And we are not good waiters. And we're particularly not good waiters when we're waiting on other people. We're waiting on other people to change. We're waiting on other people for God to have His sanctifying work in them so that they could be as spiritual and holy as we. Right? When we're waiting on that. And then bearing with one another in love. He's not talking about bearing burdens. Right? Shouldering those things. He's talking about putting up with other people because you genuinely love them. You're bearing with their uniqueness of their personalities and their quirks, right? Because you love them. Long for and labor to see this positional unity that Christ has achieved 
to become practical unity through humility and through gentleness and through patience by bearing with one another in love. Second thing, to labor to that end, I would say this, to be bound together in purpose. Be bound together in purpose, church. And this is applicable for all ages. Listen, so many of the generational, political, and even the ethnic and racial divides in the church would be mendable if we look to our purpose, not just our preferences. Listen, I I want to say a word to our students who are getting ready to go to camp this week. Listen, consider generationally, right? Generationally. What would happen in our student ministry if you were bound together in purpose? You say, what binds us together is not our preferences, right? But our purpose. The, the call that God's placed upon our lives of disciple-making, just like every other disciple of Jesus. And that we're going to put our hands to the plow, and we're all going to push in the same direction. And so whether you're in 7th grade, or you're in 8th grade, or you're in ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, or 12th grade, and you're looking around, and you're going... Man, I wish our student ministry would grow. Listen, the only way the student ministry here at this church is going to grow is if people are willing to all push in the same direction to see it grow, to see it develop, to see it flourish. I want to say something publicly, okay? We've hired Zach to come and lead our worship and our student ministry, okay? And I love Zach, but he is not a silver bullet, all right, that's going to magically create this great flourishing student ministry is going to take some of you who are students now saying, what can we build to leave behind us in our wake so that as more and more kids in this community move into junior high and senior high, there is a flourishing ministry here that they can connect to, be discipled in and sent out from. Because we're bound together in purpose, not just preferences. Right? And that requires taking some ownership of that ministry for yourselves and investing time and energy in it. Adults, consider what would happen in our life groups if we were bound together in purpose and investing relationally in one another. We could go on and on and on and on about what it looks like for everyone to put their hands on the same boulder and push in the same direction. That's a part of what it is to take this positional unity that we have and make it practical. The third thing I would say is this, is that we keep short accounts. That we keep short accounts. When someone sins against you, go and be reconciled. When you sin against someone, go and be reconciled. The longer those accounts stay open, the more the interest builds. Did you know that? The longer you keep those accounts running, right, the more interest builds. And so if you don't keep short accounts, here's what happens, is that everything that person does or everything that person says is automatically filtered through the lens of the wound that was opened because it hasn't had a chance to close because you haven't pursued reconciliation. And so the interest builds and the debt gets higher and higher and higher and higher. But whenever we keep short accounts, right, then the interest can't compound and make things worse and worse and worse over time. Are you with me? It's a part of this pursuing unity, laboring for it, longing for it, working to that end so that we would be a a delightful, beautiful people who are anointed by the Spirit of God in this community for the sake of sharing the gospel, shaping disciples, and sending missionaries into our neighborhoods and across the globe, fulfilling the Great Commission. And that our worship would not be hindered, but there'd be a sweetness of spirit when we gather in the room. Even when we got people out because they got COVID, right? Even when we got people out because they're on vacation, There'll be a sweetness among us as we raise hands 
and proclaim a hallelujah, praise be to the Lord, and come to the table to receive the cup. Because you know, you know, Jesus did not die so that his church would be divided. He died so that it would be unified. In fact, Jesus himself was anointed as our high priest. You know where? In Mark chapter 14, whenever there is a woman there at Simon's house who comes in with this expensive bottle of perfume, and what does she do? Does she put a little drop on his head? No. She cracks it open, pours the whole thing over him, anoints him as our high priest who would also be, and many of the scholars on that passage believe that she's anointing him for his death to go and die. And he would die on a hill. The place of the skull, Golgotha. He would carry his own cross up the hill and be crucified in my place and in your place. So here's this Jesus, our high priest, who's anointed with oil for death and dies on a hill, and it's from that hill, church, I will tell you, that rains down blessing and life forevermore. Is from that hill. So look to Him. Trust in Him. Cling to Him. And if there is something between you and a brother or sister today, go and be reconciled. And enjoy the delightful harmonies of the rhythm and the melody working together. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge this morning that the world in which we live is filled with division and strife. We see it. We're breathing it in constantly. May we learn to breathe out the truth of Psalm 133. That unity is pleasant and productive. It is good. It is beneficial and delightful. It is beautiful. Help us to breathe out that principle and be reminded that in it is an anointing to fulfill the call you've placed upon us and the commission you've given us as a church. And that in it is a refreshment for our souls and in a dry and parched world. So God, may you awaken within us a desire, a longing for that kind of unity that we would labor for it, be bound together in our purpose, working to the same ends and for the same goals. And may we keep our accounts short so that interest doesn't compound over the years and cause more deeply dividedness and separations. Church, as I close this prayer, I want to read to you a prayer at the end of Charles Spurgeon's sermon on this psalm. He says, oh, for more of this rare virtue, the virtue of unity. Not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells. Not that spirit which separates and secludes, but that which dwells together. Not that mind which is all for debate and difference but that which dwells together in unity. Never shall we know the full power of the anointing till we are of one heart and of one spirit. Never will the sacred dew of the spirit descend in all its fullness till we are perfectly joined together in the same mind. Never will the covenanted and commanded blessing come forth from the Lord our God till once again we shall have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord, lead us in this most precious spiritual unity for thy son's sake. And we pray it in his name and all of God's people said, amen. Church, this morning as we come to the table, I want to invite you to come, whether you're a member of this church or not. If you've repented of sin, placed your confidence in Christ, you've turned from running and ruling your own life and placed your life under his lordship and leadership, 
We invite you to come to the table. Remember the body of Jesus that was broken. Remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. And reaffirm your love and loyalty for him and for his body, the church. And as you come, if there is sin that needs to be confessed, confess it. If there are relationships that need to be made right, resolve in this moment to make those relationships right. And come and be reminded of the unifying power of the cross that draws us each together. If you're not a Christian this morning, you've never repented of sin, never placed your confidence in Jesus, then we invite you just to stay where you are. Stay seated and watch as we come to the table. But our hope would be that you would keep coming back and continue to hear about this Jesus who was anointed, this Jesus who died upon a hill so that one day you would place your confidence in him as well and be able to join us at this table and receive the bread and the cup alongside of us. We want nothing more for you. But if you're not a Christian, today is not that day for you. It may be the day to place your confidence in Him. We'd invite you to do that. I'll be at the back of the room as soon as the service is over. I would love to visit with you about what it means to place your faith in Him. But until you do so, we just say, hey, watch and observe as we come and receive the elements together. So church, this morning I invite you to stand. And if after you receive the elements, we don't do this very often here at Redeemer. In fact, I don't know that we've ever done it. But after you receive the elements, if you want to come and pray at the altar, pray for our church pray for our community pray for unity among us as a body this altar is open there 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 is we talked about with the preteens this week sometimes our posture in worship not only expresses what we're feeling but it forms what we're feeling and who we are So if you want some of that formation, maybe you come kneel this morning and just pray and plead with God for your own growth in holiness, your own growth in Christ-likeness, and for the sake of our church as we go out into the world this week into a broken, shattered, divided world that we would be refreshing and we would experience His anointing. salvation where your love for 
blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free, oh, is free. Sunsets free, always free. Indeed, oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, Hallelujah! Praise and Church, it's good to see you this morning, be able to worship together in spirit and in truth. And as you go from here today, I want to leave you with a word from the book of Numbers, our benediction this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. May you go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, church. You are dismissed.